Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 179, Exunt Pursued by Bear. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can visit Knitting Out Loud at www.knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus Magazine, the online magazine with three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find Knit Circus Magazine at www.knitcircus.com. Well, It has been one of those weeks, one of those stick-your-head-in-the-oven kind of weeks. It's just been horrid. But on the upside, I have something exciting to share with you. The official release of the Interweave e-magazine for both Macintosh and Windows called Sockupied. This is their second digital e-magazine, and I actually contributed uh, content to this. I'm very excited about this, and there are a lot of really fantastic, I think, things about this. One of my favorite things is that it's running on the Adobe Air platform. If you haven't used this before, it's a lot lighter weight and a lot less memory intensive than other programs. I'm not entirely sure how they run it, but it reminded me of an old, old, old Mac program called HyperCards. (laughs) That's going to date me for some of you, but... This particular e-magazine has 15 instructional and entertaining videos, ranging between one and six minutes in length. They're all embedded in the articles, and there are pop-ups embedded and all sorts of stuff. There's um, three videos with Cookie A, the sock designer, five videos of cast-on methods, a video of reviews of six different types of double-pointed needles, videos of sock knitters and their stories. I mean, this is like a wealth of knowledge. It is... $14, I think, $14 and change. And for those of you who have been emailing me recently and saying, gosh, I would love to learn how to knit socks, I think this actually might be the answer to your tale of woe. The, for those of you who are not new sock knitters, I know that the content that I added was on how to resize a sock while you're knitting if the pattern is not, say, friendly to kind of standard issue revision. Or if you have a foot that is odd, like you have a very narrow ankle but a wide foot, you're going to get yourself into trouble because if the ankle fits, the foot won't. And if the foot fits, the ankle will be saggy. So all of that information is in this this really cool little e-magazine called Sockupied. So if you would, please join me in visiting the links that I have on the Craftlet show notes that will take you to the Interweave site and both the press release for and the download for Sockupied. Then on a different note, my husband found this on Boing Boing. It is a movie, I guess it's a quick time movie, of nuclear bombs and where they went off. So it's a map of the world. And then as people come online with nuclear weapons, their country's maps appear in the margins, and then you start to see that color explosion. And they've done it in real time. Well, not in real time. They've done it in a a moving timeline. So it starts in 1945, 
And then, you know, you watch time pass by and nothing happens and nothing happens. And then suddenly there's Bikini Island tests and there's lots of Nevada tests. And what the heck are we doing living in Arizona? This entire part of the country must be irradiated tests. And um, and then as, as more and more countries come online, you see more and more of these blips happening. It is sobering. And... Uh, I'm amazed we haven't done more damage to the earth looking at that video. So, you know, on the one hand, you kind of feel good. You're like, wow, well, the earth survived all of that. And then on the other hand, you know, everybody's dying in Pakistan and New York and the, uh, the northeast coast got, got hit with hotter, worse summers than they've ever had before. And uh, Arizona's rain patterns are just wrong. They're just wrong. I've been talking to a lot of old-timers, and we all agree that, that things are really uh, wrong with the weather this year. It's been moving in this direction, but it's gotten weird. So, you know, we're still cooking, or else we're cooking radioactively and don't know it. I'm not sure, but it is worth watching, especially if you have teenagers who do not understand the Cold War. I, I wish I had had this when I was teaching last semester because I, I really think that they, they, could have, they could have used that visual. Maybe I'll email it to them. Um, along with all of that, uh, lots of craziness with getting what would Madame Defarge knit together. Designers are designing. Test knitters are on board. I think we can still use more. If you are interested in test knitting, please email and, uh, and I'll put your name on the list. I'm having the the, the design... <laughs> I'm buying a new tongue. I'm having the designers go and look at the list. So if you write and tell me your name, your email address, and what you're particularly good at knitting, and that could be, you know, just basic stuff, or it could be lace. You know, just be honest and let us know. That way, the right designer will get paired with you and... and uh, and everything will be good. Um, people are starting to send in designs for the design competition. Information about that can be found at craftlit.com. So that's all very exciting. Um, oh, I made yogurt. Erica, who is one of our designers, and you've heard about Erica from time to time, she, we were emailing last week, I think, and she said something about making yogurt, and I think my civilized reply was, nah uh and she emailed me the instructions on how to make yogurt with a crock pot. And I have put those instructions on my Mama Onit's blog, and I have a link to it from the show notes. You will not believe how simple this is, if, if you have a crock pot. Simple to the point that I can't, I can't imagine buying yogurt anymore, because this was just so bloody good. It's obviously preservative-free. It's all active live cultures. I made a gallon of yogurt and whey. The whey we're feeding to the dogs. When we have chickens someday, the, they'll get some of the whey. Um, it's very healthy. It makes great biscuits. I used the whey in, um, in uh, Southern Biscuits, which was really good. So, you know, nothing has to get thrown away. Yay. Kind of that more with less cookbook thing. But... Uh, but also, the yogurt was really good, and I think it, it gets thicker the more you strain it. That's kind of a duh, right? The whey drop, drips out the bottom, and you're, you're left with a kind of a solid mass of yogurt. I think this time I'm going to drain it longer, because I like my yogurt a little bit more solid, 
and um, and so do the kids. But basically, we we subdivided it, put a little bit of preserves into um, different bowls, and the kids ate this stuff. I, I mean, they drained it. The I made it Monday night, and the thing's empty. It's Friday. So, big hit. Big, big hit. So, the instructions for that, again, are at the Mama O'Nits blog. And aside from that, it's just been a lot of design scrambling. Scrambling to get a design done for Voyager. Scrambling to get my designs done for What Would Madame Defarge Knits. I got the sneak peek up last week. So, if you're interested in the next sneak peek pattern for Madame Defarge Knits, it is available for for download and let's see, you can find it both at the craftlit.com site and also crafting-a-life.com slash WWMDFK. What would Madame Defarge knit? There. I think, that's, I think that's everything, really. Seriously, there wasn't all that much coming in this week. Everybody was kind of quiet. I suppose it's kind of the lull before school starts, too. Lots of people are on vacation and um, and I seem to recall things quieting down this time of year last year as well. So, oh, and last thing before Twain, if you aren't familiar with the title of this podcast, it comes from the Shakespeare play The uh, Winter's Tale. And it is my favorite and I think funniest line ever in Shakespeare. It's a stage direction, which means it probably wasn't written originally, but it just kills me. And it I actually should have changed it. It should be exit, since I am singular, pursued by bear. But exunt, pursued by bear, is everybody leaves the stage while a bear chases them. It just, the absurdist nature of that visual just somehow makes me smile. And uh, and the idea of just getting run out of town on a rail kind of felt like what should happen to me this week. So it uh, it both makes me smile and whimper a lot anyway so twain we are getting more uh comments in the show notes about yankees and um and emails from actual honest to goodness yankees which is very exciting uh one other word that came up as a possible yankee defining term was stalwart i think i also got an email with self-reliant in it and uh I think those are those are good words to add to the lexicon when we talk about Yankees, especially because um, you'll start to notice that more and more in the boss. I think, and he's you know Twain. Twain does an amazing thing, as he does in so many of his books, where he he has this character who we like, we're supposed to like, and sometimes he's virtuous and forthright and a really good egg. And sometimes he is just, well, as Twain calls him and pretty much everybody else, an ass. He's just, you just want to smack him because he's got his, you know, his head screwed on wrong. And, and a lot of the time, that's where the humor comes from, where uh, you'll hear the, the boss uh, next week kind of uh, talking down to Sandy, Alessand, and the things that he's saying are so patently ridiculous and so clearly put him in the role of buffoon. But all of this comes right after he does something really, truly quite virtuous. And that's what we get to listen to in this chapter, this week, chapter 18. 
uh, last week, we had two, the first two chapters on Morgan Le Fay. This week, chapter 18, we finish with Morgan. And um, she is, you know, fairly stereotypical for the way she is often portrayed. Um, but Twain, Twain takes away a lot of the um, fairy tale quality that you get from uh, T.H. White or, or from uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley in The Miss of Avalon. And he, he goes more towards, um, <laughs> towards politics. You know, less Gwen in the Green, right, Green Knight and more the best and the brightest. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because by removing that kind of superstitious, otherworldly uh, gloss around her, she is, um, I think, in some ways more frightening because she's she's more real. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so in, in today's chapter, we pick up where we left off, uh, right where we left off. There was a husband who was on the rack, and his wife was with him, and the boss uh, kicked everybody else out of the room so he could talk to the man and the woman. And he assumed that since the guy was willing to die on the rack and not confess that the guy must be innocent... And what we learned was that that actually wasn't true. It was that there were mitigating circumstances. There was this this clause in the contract saying that if he confessed, then his wife's house, property, food, everything was forfeit. And that would leave his wife and his child out in the cold. So he was willing to die a horrible, painful death to spare his wife future pain. This is the beginning of the theme that will continue through this next chapter. And I think um, I think this is another situation where Twain is not going for um, a cinema verite of the sixth century. He's not he's not trying to portray the sixth century accurately. I cannot listen to this chapter without thinking that what he's really talking about is American slavery. And, uh, and the way chattel slavery was perpetrated against um, the, the people of the United States back when Twain was a kid. And, um, and I think you will hear, you know, if you, if you know anything about, uh, about this peculiar institution, I think that's what they used to call it, which is kind of horrifying. Um, but but if, you, if you know anything about it, I think you'll hear the resonances of uh, stories that we've, we've all heard about things that were done done to people. And, um, and I have no idea if this has any bearing at all on even 15th century uh, England or you know, whether it was Mallory's time or all the way back in the 6th century. I have no idea. And I don't think it matters too much because I think Twain's larger point throughout all of this book is the, that we need to examine our, our treatment of each other um, but also our um, treatment of our political system. You know, he, he points a lot of fingers at the church as a political entity, but you will hear in this episode that he is not down on people who are spiritual or religious. So, it, you know, he's walking a very fine line, and we've talked about that before, and he continues to do that in, in this chapter as well. Um, he also 
he also does, you know, some really funny things like he always does. And he has some jokes about bad musicians. Again, you can tell this is really a pet peeve for him. <laughs> I guess he liked his music and he liked his music done right. Because, uh, because once again, he's, he's making fun of the, the court musicians. So I think, I think that's all the important stuff. You know, listen, listen for the slavery resonance and, and listen for, there's a, a long passage where you can tell that it's Twain talking. And then later you can tell that it's the boss talking. And Twain does this all the time. He does this in Huck Finn. I don't recall it in, in Tom Sawyer. Obviously, roughing it is mostly him talking, but he, he does go into the voices of, of some of the people who he meets on his journey. And, um, and it's, I think if he were writing in modern times, people would criticize him deeply for doing this, but he does such a good job of it that modern standards be damned. It's, it's, it's impossible not to listen to what he has to say. So with that, I will leave you with a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Chapter 18 in the Queen's Dungeons. Well, I arranged all that and I had the man sent to his home. I had a great desire to rack the executioner, not because he was a good, painstaking, and pain-giving official, for surely it was not to his discredit that he performed his functions well, but to pay him back for wantonly cuffing and otherwise distressing that young woman. The priests told me about this, and were generously hot to have him punished. Something of this disagreeable sort was turning up every now and then, I mean, episodes that showed that not all priests were frauds and self-seekers, but that many, even the great majority of these that were down on the ground among the common people, were sincere and right-hearted and devoted to the alleviation of human troubles and sufferings. Well, it was a thing which could not be helped, so I seldom fretted about it, and never many minutes at a time. It has never been my way to bother much about things which you can't cure. But I did not like it, for it was just the sort of thing to keep people reconciled to an established church. We must have a religion, it goes without saying, but my idea is to have it cut up into forty free sects, so that they will police each other, as had been the case in the United States in my time. Concentration of power in a political machine is bad, and an established church is only a political machine. It was invented for that. It is nursed, cradled, preserved for that. It is an enemy to human liberty, and does no good which it could not better do in a split-up and scattered condition. That wasn't law. It wasn't gospel. It was only an opinion, my opinion, and I was only a man, one man. So it wasn't worth any more than the Pope's, or any less for that matter." Well, I couldn't rack the executioner, neither would I overlook the just complaint of the priests. The man must be punished somehow or other, so I degraded him from his office and made him leader of the band, the new one that was to be started. He begged hard and said he couldn't play, a plausible excuse, but too thin. There wasn't a musician in the country that could. The queen was a good deal outraged next morning when she found she was going to have neither Hugo's life nor his property. But I told her she must bear this cross, that while by law and custom she certainly was entitled to both the man's life and his property, there were extenuating circumstances, and so in Arthur the king's name I had pardoned him. The deer was ravaging the man's fields, 
and he had killed it in sudden passion and not for gain, and he had carried it into the royal forest in the hope that that might make detection of the misdoer impossible. Confound her! I couldn't make her see that sudden passion is an extenuating circumstance in the killing of venison or of a person, so I gave it up and let her sulk it out. I did think I was going to make her see it by remarking that her own sudden passion, in the case of the page, modified that crime. Crime? she exclaimed. How thou talkest! Crime, forsooth! Man, I am going to pay for him! Oh, it was no use to waste sense on her. Training, training is everything. Training is all there is to a person. We speak of nature. It is folly. There is no such thing as nature. What we call by that misleading name is merely heredity and training. We have no thoughts of our own, no opinions of our own. They are transmitted to us, trained into us. All that is original in us, and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable to us, can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle, all the rest being atoms contributed by and inherited from a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the Adam clan or grasshopper or monkey from whom our race has been so tediously and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed. And as for me, all that I think about in this plodding sad pilgrimage, this pathetic drift between the eternities, is to look out and humbly live a pure and high and blameless life, and save that one microscopic atom in me that is truly me. The rest may land in Sheol, and welcome for all I care. No, confound her, her intellect was good, she had brains enough, but her training made her an ass, that is, from a many centuries later point of view. To kill the page was no crime, it was her right, and upon her right she stood, serenely and unconscious of offense. She was a result of generations of training in the unexamined and unassailed belief that the law which permitted her to kill a subject when she chose was a perfectly right and righteous one. Well, we must give even Satan his due. She deserved a compliment for one thing, and I tried to pay it, but the words stuck in my throat. She had a right to kill the boy, but she was in no wise obliged to pay for him— that was law for some other people, but not for her. She knew quite well that she was doing a large and generous thing to pay for that lad, and that I ought in common fairness to come out with something handsome about it, but I couldn't. My mouth refused. I couldn't help seeing in my fancy that poor old grandma with the broken heart, and that fair young creature lying butchered, his little silken pomps and vanities laced with his golden blood— how could she pay for him? Whom could she pay? And so, well knowing that this woman, trained as she had been, deserved praise, even adulation, I was yet not able to utter it, trained as I had been. The best I could do was to fish up a compliment from outside, so to speak, and the pity of it was that it was true. "'Madam, your people will adore you for this.' "'Quite true, but I meant to hang her for it some day if I lived. "'Some of those laws were too bad, altogether too bad. "'A master might kill his slave for nothing, for mere spite, malice, or to pass the time, "'just as we have seen that the crowned head could do it with his slave, "'that is to say, anybody. 
A gentleman could kill a free commoner and pay for him, cash or garden truck. A noble could kill a noble without expense, as far as the law was concerned, but reprisals in kind were to be expected. Any body could kill somebody except the commoner and the slave. These had no privileges. If they killed, it was murder, and the law wouldn't stand murder. It made short work of the experimenter, and of his family, too, if he murdered somebody who belonged up among the ornamental ranks. If a commoner gave a noble even so much as a Damien's scratch, which didn't kill or even hurt, he got Damien's dose for it just the same. They pulled him to rags and tatters with horses, and all the world came to see the show and crack jokes and have a good time, and some of the performances of the best people present were as tough and as properly unprintable as any that have been printed by the pleasant Casanova in his chapter about the dismemberment of Louis XV's poor, awkward enemy. I had had enough of this grisly place by this time and wanted to leave, but I couldn't, because I had something on my mind that my conscience kept prodding me about and wouldn't let me forget. If I had the remaking of man, he wouldn't have any conscience. It is one of the most disagreeable things connected with a person, and although it certainly does a great deal of good, it cannot be said to pay in the long run. It would be much better to have less good and more comfort. Still, this is only my opinion. I am only one man. Others with less experience may think differently. They have a right to their view. I only stand to this. I have noticed my conscience for many years, and I know it is more trouble and bother to me than anything else I started with. I suppose that in the beginning I prized it, because we prize anything that is ours, and yet how foolish it was to think so. If we look at it in another way, we see how absurd it is. If I had an anvil in me, would I prize it? Of course not. And yet, when you come to think, there is no real difference between a conscience and an anvil. I mean, for comfort. I have noticed it a thousand times. And you could dissolve an anvil with acids when you couldn't stand it any longer, but there isn't any way that you can work off a conscience, at least so it will stay worked off. Not that I know of, anyway. There was something I wanted to do before leaving, but it was a disagreeable matter, and I hated to go at it. Well, it bothered me all the morning. I could have mentioned it to the old king, but what would be the use? He was but an extinct volcano. He had been active in his time, but his fire was out. This good while, he was only a stately ash-pile now, gentle enough and kindly enough for my purpose, without doubt, but not usable. He was nothing, this so-called king. The queen was the only power there, and she was a Vesuvius. As a favor, she might consent to warm a flock of sparrows for you, but then she might take that very opportunity to turn herself loose and bury a city. However, I reflected that as often as any other way, when you are expecting the worst, you get something that is not so bad after all. So I braced up and placed my matter before Her Royal Highness. I said I had been having a general jail delivery at Camelot and among neighboring castles, and with her permission I would like to examine her collection, her bric-a-brac, that is to say, her prisoners. She resisted, but I was expecting that. But she finally consented. I was expecting that, too, but not so soon. That about ended my discomfort. She called her guards and torches, and we went down into the dungeons. 
These were down under the castle's foundations, and mainly were small cells hollowed out of the living rock. Some of these cells had no light at all. In one of them was a woman, in foul rags, who sat on the ground and would not answer a question or speak a word, but only looked up at us once or twice through a cobweb of tangled hair, as if to see what casual thing it might be that was disturbing with sound and light the meaningless dull dream that was become her life. After that she sat bowed, with her dirt-caked fingers idly interlocked in her lap, and gave no further sign. This poor rack of bones was a woman of middle age, apparently, but only apparently. She had been there nine years, and was eighteen when she entered. She was a commoner, and had been sent here on her bridal night by Sir Bruce Sansapite, a neighboring lord whose vassal her father was, and to which said lord she had refused what has since been called le droit du seigneur, and, moreover, had opposed violence to violence, and spilt half a gill of his almost sacred blood. The young husband had interfered at that point, believing the bride's life in danger, and had flung the noble out into the midst of the humble and trembling wedding guests in the parlor, and left him there astonished at this strange treatment, and implacably embittered against both bride and groom. The said lord, being cramped for a dungeon-room, had asked the queen to accommodate his two criminals, and here in her Bastille they had been ever since. Hither, indeed, they had come before their crime was an hour old, and had never seen each other since. Here they were, kenneled like toads in the same rock. They had passed nine pitch-dark years within fifty feet of each other, yet neither knew whether the other was alive or not. All the first years their only question had been, asked with beseechings and tears that might have moved stones in time, perhaps, but hearts are not stones, Is he alive? Is she alive? But they had never got an answer, and at last that question was not asked any more, or any other. I wanted to see the man after hearing all this. He was thirty-four years old and looked sixty. He sat upon a squared block of stone, with his head bent down, his forearms resting on his knees, his long hair hanging like a fringe before his face, and he was muttering to himself. He raised his chin and looked us slowly over in a listless, dull way, blinking with the distress of the torchlight, then dropped his head and fell to muttering again, and took no further notice of us. There were some pathetically suggestive dumb witnesses present. On his wrists and ankles were cicatrices, old smooth scars, and fastened to the stone on which he sat was a chain with manacles and fetters attached. But this apparatus lay idle on the ground, and was thick with rust. Chains cease to be needed after the spirit has gone out of a prisoner. I could not rouse the man, so I said we would take him to her and see, to the bride who was the fairest thing in the earth to him once, roses, pearls, and dew-made flesh for him. A wonder-work, the master-work of nature, with eyes like no other eyes, and voice like no other voice, and a freshness and lithe young grace and beauty that belonged properly to the creatures of dreams, as he thought, and to no other. The sight of her would set his stagnant blood leaping, the sight of her. But it was a disappointment. They sat together on the ground and looked dimly wondering into each other's faces a while, with a sort of weak animal curiosity, then forgot each other's presence, and dropped their eyes, and you saw that they were away again, and wandering in some far land of dreams and shadows that we know nothing about. I had them taken out and sent to their friends. 
The Queen did not like it much. Not that she felt any personal interest in the matter, but she thought it disrespectful to Sir Breau's Sansepite. However, I assured her that if he found he couldn't stand it, I would fix him so that he could. I set forty-seven prisoners loose out of those awful rat-holes, and left only one in captivity. He was a lord, and had killed another lord, a sort of kinsman of the Queen. That other lord had ambushed him to assassinate him, but this fellow had got the best of him and cut his throat. However, it was not for that that I left him jailed, but for maliciously destroying the only public well in one of his wretched villages. The Queen was bound to hang him for killing her kinsman, but I would not allow it. It was no crime to kill an assassin. But I said I was willing to let her hang him for destroying the well. So she concluded to put up with that, as it was better than nothing. Dear me, for what trifling offenses the most of those forty-seven men and women were shut up there! Indeed, some were there for no distinct offense at all, but only to gratify somebody's spite. And not all was the Queen's by any means, but a friend's. The newest prisoner's crime was a mere remark which he had made. He said he believed that men were about all alike, and one man as good as another, barring clothes. He said he believed that if you were to strip the nation naked and send a stranger through the crowd, he couldn't tell the king from a quack doctor, nor a duke from a hotel clerk. Apparently here was a man whose brains had not been reduced to an ineffectual mush by idiotic training. I set him loose and sent him to the factory. Some of the cells carved in the living rock were just behind the face of the precipice, and in each of these an arrow-slit had been pierced outward to the daylight, and so the captive had a thin ray from the blessed sun for his comfort. The case of one of these poor fellows was particularly hard. From his dusky swallows hole high up in that vast wall of native rock, he could peer out through the arrow-slit and see his own home off yonder in the valley— and for twenty-two years he had watched it, with heartache and longing, through that crack. He could see the lights shine there at night, and in the daytime he could see figures go in and come out, his wife and children, some of them no doubt, though he could not make out at that distance. In the course of years he noted festivities there, and tried to rejoice, and wondered if they were weddings or what they might be, and he noted funerals, and they wrung his heart. He could make out the coffin— but he could not determine its size, and so could not tell whether it was wife or child. He could see the procession form with priests and mourners, and move solemnly away, bearing the secret with them. He had left behind him five children and a wife, and in nineteen years he had seen five burials issue, and none of them humble enough in pomp to denote a servant. So he had lost five of his treasures. There must still be one remaining— one now infinitely unspeakably precious, but which one, wife or child? That was the question that tortured him by night and by day, asleep and awake. Well, to have an interest of some sort and a half a ray of light when you are in a dungeon is a great support to the body and preserver of the intellect. This man was in pretty good condition yet. By the time he had finished telling me his distressful tale— I was in the same state of mind that you would have been in yourself, if you have got average human curiosity. That is to say, I was as burning up as he was to find out which member of the family it was that was left. So I took him over home myself. And an amazing kind of surprise party it was, too. 
typhoons and cyclones of frantic joy and whole niagaras of happy tears and by george we found the aforetime young matron graying toward the imminent verge of her half-century and the babies all men and women and some of them married and experimenting family-wise themselves for not a soul of the tribe was dead conceive of the ingenious devilishness of that queen she had a special hatred for this prisoner and she had invented all those funerals herself to scorch his heart with and the sublimest stroke of genius of the whole thing was leaving the family invoice a funeral short so as to let him wear his poor old soul out guessing but for me he never would have got out morgan le fay hated him with her whole heart and she never would have softened toward him and yet his crime was committed more in thoughtlessness than deliberate depravity he had said she had red hair well she had but that was no way to speak of it when red-headed people are above a certain social grade their hair is auburn consider it among these forty-seven captives there were five whose names offenses and dates of incarceration were no longer known one woman and four men all bent and wrinkled and mind-extinguished patriarchs. They themselves had long ago forgotten these details. At any rate, they were, had mere vague theories about them, nothing definite, and nothing that they repeated twice in the same way. The succession of priests, whose office it had been to pray daily with the captives and remind them that God had put them there, for some wise purpose or other, and teach them that patience, humbleness, and submission to oppression— was what he loved to see in parties of a subordinate rank, had traditions about these poor old human ruins, but nothing more. These traditions went but little way, for they concerned the length of the incarceration only and not the names of the offenses. And even by the help of tradition, the only thing that could be proven was that none of the five had seen daylight for thirty-five years. How much longer this privation has lasted was not guessable. The king and the queen knew nothing about these poor creatures except that they were heirlooms, assets inherited, along with the throne, from the former firm. Nothing of their history had been transmitted with their persons, and so the inheriting owners had considered them of no value and had felt no interest in them. I said to the queen, "'Then why in the world didn't you set them free?' The question was a puzzler. She didn't know why she hadn't. The thing had never come up in her mind. So here she was, forecasting the veritable history of future prisoners of the Castle Deef without knowing it. It seemed plain to me now that, with her training, those inherited prisoners were merely property, nothing more, nothing less. Well, when we inherit property, it does not occur to us to throw it away, even when we do not value it. When I brought my procession of human bats up into the open world and the glare of the afternoon sun, previously blindfolding them in charity for eyes so long untortured by light, they were a spectacle to look at. Skeletons, scarecrows, goblins, pathetic frights every one, legitimatest possible children of monarchy by the grace of God and the established church. I muttered absently, I wish I could photograph them. You have seen that kind of people who will never let on that they don't know the meaning of a new big word. The more ignorant they are, the more pitifully certain they are to pretend you haven't shot over their heads. The queen was just one of that sort, and was always making the stupidest blunders by reason of it. She hesitated a moment, then her face brightened up with sudden comprehension, and she said, 
she would do it for me. I thought to myself, she? Why, what can she know about photography? But it was a poor time to be thinking. When I looked around, she was moving on the procession with an axe. Well, she certainly was a curious one, was Morgan Le Fay. I have seen a good many kinds of women in my time, but she laid over them all for variety. And how sharply characteristic of her this episode was. She had no more idea than a horse of how to photograph her procession, but being in doubt, it was just like her to try to do it with an axe. End of chapter 18. I love the way that ends <laughs> with Morgan and the axe. Ah,、uh, yes. So,、uh, that was, you know, a funny ending, but kind of a sobering picture of life. And next week, actually, we pick up Sandy's story because if you recall, the whole reason. That the boss and Sandy are out and about is because they need to get back to Sandy's,、uh, the, the place that Sandy said an ogre had enchanted all these young women and,、uh, and they were in sore need of rescuage. And that is, that's where we, we come back to next week. So that'll be fun. Sandy's always a hoot. Anywho,、uh, I think that's it. Let's see, sneak peek pattern is up. Um, making changes to the writing tutoring site.、Uh, gonna get some more webinar things going. And what would Madame Defarge knit? Moving along nicely. If you want to test knit, email me. I think that's it. I hope you have a good week. I hope you remain well. And I hope you listen next week. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, listen while you knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the summer issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>